If you have a Bible today and you'd read along with us, I'd encourage you to. Um, We're going to take a reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 17 down to verse 25 of our scripture reading today. Again, that's Matthew, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 17 to 25. Now this follows a beginning of the Gospel of Matthew where Matthew is giving a list of names. And uh, a lot of people consider that fairly boring, and maybe it is. Um, uh, But sometimes boring things are very important things. And uh, that's a very important thing what he's doing here. Um, He's showing us Jesus' heritage. And that's a really integral part of introducing the person of Jesus. He's about to introduce him as the Messiah. Now, the whole Testament, so everything before this book, the whole purpose of it is to prepare the world for the Messiah. Since the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, just following Adam and Eve's transgression against God, God even tells the first people, a Messiah is coming. From that point forward, every generation has been told that there is going to come a man who will save you from your sins. And as God was trying to help us identify who that would be, because there's many imposters. Many people come And have come throughout history projecting themselves not only to be the Savior sent from God, but a political Savior, economic Savior, Savior of your home, your life. And so God gave us in His mercy, His Word spread out through thousands of years and tucked deep within each of these books are these little descriptions about what he will be like, what he will look like, what he will act like, what will be going on in the world when he comes. And so the Bible tells us in the book of Peter that the prophets inquired diligently. So they'd study those books, trying to determine when and who it might be, the Holy Spirit within them indicating that he was coming. And so not only did they have this book that gave these descriptions, but there was something within preaching to them. The Messiah is going to come. And so Matthew begins by clearly stating one of the most important qualifications that the Messiah had to meet. He had to be a descendant of Abraham. And so rather than just saying, well, he's a Jew and he came from Abraham, he lists out 42 generations. He tracks it. And he even has these little markers throughout where he says from Abraham to David, here are the 14 names. 
And from David to when they're carried off to Babylon, here's another 14 generations. And from Babylon until today, here's another 14 generations. That's all as a Jew who is anticipating and is still anticipating today, many, the coming of the Messiah. This is a necessary proof. And so he's about to declare him in this very chapter, this is him. This is the Messiah. And so that boring part is necessary to prove to us that at least one of these imperative qualifications Jesus meets. That's where he begins in verse 17 is in the conclusion of that. He says this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ. Now just so you know what he's doing here. The word Christ means Messiah. So that's what he's saying. Jesus, the Messiah. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, And he called his name Jesus. That'll conclude our reading this morning. And so we're going to take a interest in all of these verses, but we're going to derive our title from verse 23. I'm going to read that again. It says this. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And here's what it says. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The title of our message this morning is God with us. God with us. Of course, this story contained in the first two chapters of the book of Matthew and even more detail given to us in the book of Luke, the first two, even three chapters of the book of Luke tells us of what we would call the Christmas story. A lot of details in all these stories, many of which are vital for us to know about Jesus coming into the world, and all of which have various purposes why God gave them. 
Many times we talk about or consider and think about the wise men. You'll often hear the saying or see on church signs, wise men still seek Jesus. And that's true. We could talk about those who were abiding in the field, the shepherds. And what a night that that must have been. Cold, perhaps. Doing your nightly duty. And as most of the time is the case in life, the greatest events that take place in our lives are not planned and prepared and expected. All of a sudden, they just happen. And that's how it was with those shepherds abiding in the field. All of a sudden, they saw these celestial beings. People, or what perceived perhaps as these beings that just appeared and told them that there in Bethlehem, a child was going to be born. And they began to sing. We read of the man in the scriptures named Simeon, who God had revealed such an incredible truth that before he died, what had been waited on for over or for approximately 4,000 years, he was going to get to hold this child, this Messiah, before he died. So imagine the eagerness that he must have entered the temple with every single day, waiting. Is today the day? And as they would bring in children for the eighth day circumcision, wondering, is that it? Is he it? Is he it? And perhaps having his hopes dashed over and over day after day as children came in, finally there comes in a child. Not with pomp and circumstance, not with parents of notoriety coming as kings might come, but just the most simple, young, betrothed parents. And God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to him and reveals that this little baby is the Savior of the world. What a, what a wonderful truth that we can read. What about Anna the prophet, who, like Simeon, the same? What about Zacharias and Elizabeth? John the Baptist is Jesus' first cousin, as we would call it. And he's in the womb of Elizabeth, and as Mary enters the door and calls out Elizabeth's name, the baby leaps in the womb. And you often have probably seen that the first one to rejoice at the coming of the Messiah was an unborn baby. How all that worked, I don't know. But the Bible tells us that he rejoiced. He leaped in the womb of Elizabeth because of Jesus being born. What about the little manger set that we have up here? Which has become somewhat of a symbol of Christmas. You drive in front of houses and various places of business and you see something that looks similar to this. Certainly the circumstances upon which Jesus are born are important details. But what we have in this story are the essentials right here. All of that. God and his own purposes decide to give to us all those details. And there are perhaps many more notable details that he just decided not to leave. But what we read to you this morning is the most important truth from Christmas. I'm reminded of that today because just like all the details that are good, 
all of the details which are notable and which may speak to us in various ways, often Christmas today is the same. There are many wonderful things about the way that we celebrate Christmas. I love, as Sister Melanie said, to get together with family and to see the joy this morning as my boys woke me up way too early to go downstairs and and open the gifts and to see the joy and the love and the affection that can be expressed. All of those things are blessings from God that I give Him such praise for. That I can enjoy being here with you all and worshiping. But this, this is what matters above all. That there is this little young girl whom God saw fit. To overshadow is what the King James calls it in the book of Luke. He overshadowed her. She was sinful. But the Bible teaches us back in the book of Genesis that sin runs through the seed of the man. Or in other words, you can use against your dad that you're a sinner because of your dad. Right? That the law was given back in Genesis chapter 2 to Adam. And when Adam transgressed, Sin came into the world. And so sin from generation to generation has been passed down through the man's seed. And so you're a sinner not only because you sin, but you sin also because you're born a sinner. From the moment that you are conceived to the moment that you're born, you come forth, as the Bible says, speaking lies and hypocrisies that there's evil in the heart of man. And so what was necessary for a savior to be born is that someone would come into the world unblemished by sin. Or in other words, without the seed of a man. That is why Jesus' birth through a virgin is so vital to Jesus truly being the savior of the world. Had he had a father, he would have had, he would have been infected with sin. But this created quite a conundrum at this time because here Joseph, this innocent young man, reacted perhaps better than any of us men would react. He, by law, had the right in Jewish law to stone her, to see about her being stoned because from all appearance, she had sinned against their covenant agreement. And yet, you'll notice here the character of Joseph, the very little that we know about Joseph and his character. It says that rather than being reactive, he took and he thought on these things. Imagine how confusing that it must have been for Mary to come to Joseph and say, I know this is going to sound a little outlandish, but an angel appeared to me and says that I have the Messiah in my womb and I've never been with another man. And so he looked to put her away privately. And then he has this experience with God where angel appears to him and says, no, it was the Holy Spirit that placed the seed within her to have this child. She's not known any man, but you shall call his name Jesus. So the first thing this story tells us is that not only did Jesus come from the proper background, but the means through which he came was uninfected with sin through a virgin's womb. Tells us in here about not only that he came. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians chapter 3, I believe it is, that God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. That just means in the proper 
time. God sent forth his son. Born or made of a woman, made under the law. That not only did Jesus come through a virgin's womb, but he came at a very particular time. There's a lot of reasons why he could have come at that time, but I'll give you why I think that Jesus came at that time. Darkness prevailed over the face of the earth no greater than at the time that Jesus came. In other words, not literal darkness, but sin. Sin was in the world in a way that is difficult to put into words. But if you read throughout history what was taking place at this time, it defies words what was going on at this time. And yet, that's the beauty of Jesus coming into the world is that God did not select a pampered time like you and I live in where there's all of these modern conveniences and morality, although it is declining, is in a greater state than what most of the history of the world has ever known. But when God decided to send forth His Son into the world, it was not that He might have preferential treatment or that He might live in an age which is desirable, but rather God sent forth his son into the world when the world knew no greater sin than what they were experiencing at that moment and as darkness was completely veiling the light of God all around the world God sent forth his own son to come into the world to be a light to the whole world and when is the light most noticeable when is it most desirable except when people have lived in the greatest darkness And as God lit that light there in that manger, it was just a foretaste. It was just a allusion to what Jesus was going to come and do himself to the world. Here, they said his name would be called Jesus. That's that's what that's the English, that's the English pronunciation of it. The actual pronunciation is Yeshua. It's the same Hebrew pronunciation that is the word Joshua in the Old Testament. So when you read about Joshua, that he came during that time following Moses, and what was he? He was a commander. He was one that came to fight, and he spent approximately 36 years in the world, or excuse me, as the leader of God's people, and he came Fighting And that word Yeshua means the Lord is salvation. And so here Joshua comes during a time which is natural for the people of God. They've been delivered from bondage, but they have not yet received the promised land which God had given them. And so here Joshua comes. This man, the Lord, is come to save his people. To provide them a promised land. And that's what Jesus has named The Lord is salvation. And it tells us why that he is called Yeshua. Here's what it says in verse 21. And shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Yeshua. For he shall save his people from their sins. You know, during this time, no different than our present time, many people mistook the purpose of the Messiah. Still do, many people. Just like many people today will even reverence Jesus or respect Jesus in a certain way. 
He was a profound teacher. You can't read the Gospels without coming to the conclusion that in the very least, he was a brilliant moral teacher. Let's say you take it a step further and you acknowledge that perhaps he performed these miracles. And so you could say of Jesus, you know, he had a lot of power and he did a lot of good. So God somehow endued him with this power to heal people. And so he was a healer and he was a teacher. Some might even say he was a prophet because he foretold certain events that would take place in the past or excuse me, in the future. You could say he was a leader. Some would say he was a rebel. Some could say, like many do today, that he was even the son of God. So he wasn't God, but he was this place between a human being and God. He was the son of God. All of those things that I have described are certainly true. He was a teacher. He was a prophet. He was a healer. And he was the son of God. And just like at this time, many not only mistook who he was, but they also mistook what he came to do. Because some even said at the time, he is the Messiah. He has come to deliver us from Roman bondage. And so they were constantly following him. And some of them were even edging for a place in his new earthly kingdom. They wanted to be someone important in the world, and so they're waiting When is he going to come and begin to overthrow the slavery of the Romans? When is he going to crown himself Caesar? And so they acknowledged him in part correctly, but in part, they were way off. You see, Jesus did come to save us. And many people today look at God and look at Jesus as this Christian Santa Claus, that when we're suffering, he has come to save me from suffering. And yet that is not the case. Loneliness, some people experience, especially during this time, and our hearts and our actions ought to try to support them in this period where people are particularly sensitive to their loneliness. But Jesus did not come ultimately just to help us in temporary feelings of loneliness. Jesus sometimes is used to say, you know, he is the, how do I want to put this? He is the ultimate um, reference that if I'm in an argument with somebody, I can quote his words to silence them, appeal to his authority as a teacher and as a philosopher. And he certainly was those things, but that's not why he came. Jesus came into the world to be the Savior from our sins. Most people today, they look at so many things as the enemy. Government is the enemy. This group is the enemy. That group is the enemy. Sickness is the enemy. All of these various things are the enemy. Listen to me this morning. The Bible clearly teaches us that sin is the ultimate enemy of mankind because ultimately sin has separated us from God. And our love and affection for sin, those thoughts that go through your mind, that selfish planning that you do to appease the appetites and desires of your heart, ultimately, that is your eternal enemy. 
And it had been, and it has been since the fall of man. Every man, woman, and child infected with sin has this terrible enemy. And the Bible tells us that it is a taskmaster. It is a slave to us. And even when we want to get away, even when we're repulsed by our own sins, we cannot get away from this taskmaster. He has conquered every part of our being. And because of that, there are consequences. You know, people often don't like this part of the gospel because it sounds very harsh. And yet what we'll often do is that we expect God to function in ways that we don't even function. For example, you have the prerogative to decide who your associations are going to be. And if there are people who are found in notable, uh, notorious sins, you likely do not become close, intimate friends with them. Fearful that their behavior may disgrace your character. Fearful that their actions may impede on your freedom and the things that you care about. And so we recognize all of mankind has the right to choose their own associations. But let me tell you, God also has the prerogative to decide his own associations. Who is God going to be friends with? Who is he going to allow into his inner circle of people? And what God has declared is only those who are perfect have a right to be within the presence of his holy character. And that presents a big problem for you and I because you and I aren't perfect. And nor all the striving, he who strives and he who wills and he who desires with all of his heart to be perfect. And there are many people in the brokenness of their own mind who really believe in the perfectibility of man. That they can continue to work and do good deeds. Or that perhaps if they uh, do all these good things, it will outnumber the bad things. But God's word has clearly declared to us that God will have no association with sin whatsoever. And so rather than bending the rules, rather than tweaking the boundaries of what God will associate with, you know what God did? He made provisions to cleanse you and forgive you from all sin. And that could only be done through sending a Savior into the world. So Jesus' whole purpose in coming from the very beginning was to save us from our sins. And not only were his perfect Actions in line with his intended purpose, but even the manner in which he came was meant to give the greatest display of his intended purpose. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus, I suppose, could have come aloof from man. Lived perfect. Died displayed sufficiently who he was that people would acknowledge say, you are the savior and we have to put you to death because that's what God requires but almost there'd be like a halo around him as they're putting him to death they're mourning and weeping but Jesus didn't come that way because let me, let me say it like this if you were given a gift but you couldn't use it think of like a tool or or something that you were given that you did not have the capacity to use and understand. Even though it might have great value. Even though other people may love what you were given. If you can't use it, what good is it to you? See, Jesus didn't come set apart in some sense. 
He came and he dwelt among us. That we might see him and know him. That's why the name that was given 700 years before this, Emmanuel. That's what the prophet Isaiah, 760 years before this was ever fulfilled. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's what it was quoting here in the 23rd verse. It was saying that Emmanuel would come. And it tells us exactly what that means. God with us. As I was looking at this text, two things jumped out to me. Number one, why Jesus came. He came to bring us salvation. That's why we have this season. And then the second thing that just, every time I consider this, it, it, it's too great for me that I have to back away. God was with us. In the song that we sung here a few moments ago, How Great Thou Art, the second verse talks about when you go out into nature and you see the beauty when you see the complexity and the more that you understand about nature and biology and ecosystems and just everything the more you learn the more it defies the human brain how all this is possible And so you go out and you do all this and you you try to comprehend it if you're like me. You try to put things together and see how things function. And and, and very often what I'll do is I'll break things into layers and I'll say, okay, this is how this little tiny ecosystem works. And then I try to put that tiny ecosystem within a bigger framework of ecosystems that they all work together. And then I take that next one and I put it in another compare. And and you just keep layering on top of layering on top from the smallest molecule to the the, the atmosphere up, up into the universe and you see the solar systems and you go from the great to the small and you see how every small atom plays an integral part in the greater vast universe that we have and yet in that small atom it is almost as complex as the, the whole itself and you pause for a moment and as you consider all of that it leaves us without words to simply conclude that even if you don't acknowledge the God of the Bible as God you have to stand back and say whoever made all of this must be great and the fact that he came to be with us have you ever been in the presence of someone that humbled you you may have a field of expertise perhaps you may have a certain body of knowledge that is enhanced above the rest you may have a talent Have you ever been around somebody that puts that to shame? I've said a few times before, I can kind of piddle on the piano a little bit. But when I go to places where there's a lot of piano players, I don't volunteer to play. If you've ever played as a a sport, you may have been really good within your field. But then when you get to a professional level, if you've ever played a professional, it's a different ball game. And the wisest thing to do is to just step back. And yet, that's just the frail expertise of men. Flimsy and laughable in the face of our great God. And this tells us that within God's plan, God came to be with us.
And as we studied on Wednesday night through the book of John, and the word became flesh. And then I love this next part, and dwelt among us. That word is tabernacled. The word tabernacle means a tent. Or in other words, in this life, you pitch your tent one place, and Jesus pitched his tent next door. And he allowed and allows us to dwell around with him. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Tolerating. I don't like that word. I don't know what other word to use. Tolerating sin for a time. God came to be with us. You know the wonderful thing about that promise? God was with us. God is with us. You heard Sister Melanie make reference of something this morning. She's thankful for what she can feel. Now, I think all of us here know that emotions can create a lot of things. That our minds can conceive thoughts that may have an impact on our body to give us euphoric feelings. And certainly we ought to, especially in religion, beware of that. Be careful. But then there is justifiable emotion. And that justifiable emotion is not something self-created. It is a response to something else. Right? So if I'm just simply coming in here and inviting all the congregants that let's get ourselves in this emotional frenzy, which perhaps many religions do, it would be wise for someone to squelch that. But when God is present and is manifesting himself within us, which is what he has promised that he would do, that through his Holy Spirit, the person of the Godhead, that we, especially collectively, would be his temple and that God's Holy Spirit would manifest himself. And though it is not discernible by the eye, it is sensible by the spirit of man that when God gets into our presence, I can sense the supernatural because it is familiar to me. I have been in his presence before and it has caused a certain reaction in my heart. How do you know that it's God? That's a great question. I'm not going to try to answer that this morning, but here's what I can tell you. There is something more unique about his presence than anything else. There is a loss. There is... I I want to carefully put this because this could be taken... Wrong. I would compare it like this. If we were to get all the children in the room and we were to blindfold them and each one of their dads were to come up here and say, son, come to the front. I would bet that every single child that was the parent of this dad would walk to the front. Why? There's this Subtle familiarity in tone and inflection and about the parent's voice that is just ring so familiar. And I could try to imitate Brother Gerald's voice or Brother Micah's voice, and yet there is something that is distinct about your father's voice. That's the only way that I know how to succinctly describe the voice of the Lord. When it's his, I know it. 
And when His presence, which He has promised us, would be the case, manifest among us. That is God with us. Now listen, you say, maybe, oh, that's not good enough for me. I want more. Well, that's, that's funny because that's what they clamored for here. You know, one of, the, one of the strange things about this whole period of time during Jesus' life is that Jesus would come and be around people and he would show himself to be who he was in a certain way, but the people wanted him to show himself differently. They had preferences as to who he would be and where he would come from and what he would sound like and what he would do. And they allowed all of their preferences about the way the Messiah and that God in the flesh would be that they were blinded by the one who actually came and that is no different than today many people could say well if God would do this or God would do that then I would believe then I would follow then I would be an adherent of what you're saying but who are you and I to dictate to God the way that he ought to come to us you do well to know your own heart God knows it much better than what you do And perhaps your biases and prejudices and preferences are getting in the way of you seeing God. Have you ever had the thought, what a shame. that These, especially those in Matthew and throughout the book of John, as we've been studying on Wednesday night, the theme comes over and over and over and over, almost through every single chapter. These wise men, these educated men, these religious men, these intellectual elites who of all should have recognized him didn't see him. But it was those that said, you know what? I'm fallible and imperfect. I'm not going to boast in my ignorance, but I will acknowledge it. I'm seeing what he's doing and I'm hearing what he's saying. And I'm sensing the powerful effect it's having within me. And I've at least got to give him a chance. Sad thing about people today is God is often in their very presence. And yet because it's different than what they expected or different than the preferences they may have, they miss him altogether. This morning, as we conclude our story today this story contains two parts that I hope throughout today that you would be, be thankful for but also I would say be a herald for a herald is one that calls forth and as Christians we're called to be heralds of the gospel those that would call it forth One, that the Lord of salvation, Yeshua, came to be with us. And that he came with the intent to save us from our sins. And he accomplished what was necessary to save us from our sins. Praise God for salvation through Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that it extends to all people. God came and dwelt among us. Who? Us. As inclusive as that word can possibly be, Jesus came and dwelt among us. Jesus came to save us from our sins. 
and the last note that we made, that God was with us and that God is with us. I am so thankful today. I would say this. If I believe that Sister Melanie's testimony, both Steve's testimony, ones that we've heard throughout the past year and beyond were um, emotional stirs, you know, just just ringing emotions just to ring emotions. I would have, I I find no value in it. Perhaps that's why that so many religions just have a, a course of action that's published beforehand and everybody just goes dryly through the same behavior every single week. Because in truth, at the core of such a design is God is not going to manifest himself today. He's not going to stir the hearts of the people towards genuine, unplanned worship. And so why not coordinate everything to where it fits the designs and, uh, and the desires of men? Maybe it would stir a little emotion so it makes our gathering more lively. No, but if you believe that God is still with us, why would you not allow a service to be designed where people can, as they feel so inclined in the presence of God, to react to His presence as their heart dictates? In the Bible, there is a lesson or a devotional that our families did, I don't know, almost a year ago now, about this man, actually the chapter before Isaiah 7, Isaiah 6. And Isaiah got in the presence of God. He knew it was God's presence. And one sign that he knew it is he lost all care for what was going on around him. He fell to his feet and cried out that he was an unholy, an unclean man with unclean lips who had no business being in the presence of God Almighty. I pray today that God would be with you today. I pray that you would recognize, let me say this, I pray that if it is God, you would allow yourself to recognize that it is Him. That you would open your heart to possibly being God speaking to you. Because let me put it this way, what if it, how inconsiderate of God to come and do all these things and then leave us helpless. To interpret for ourselves where to go, how to be saved, what to do. No, no, that's not what he did. He came and left behind his spirit himself to reveal to the deepest part of a human being whether what you're hearing, whether what you're sensing, whether what you're coming to know is really him or not. This morning, I'm thankful that God is with us. I'm grateful this morning that as I, this afternoon, will read this story to my children. This is the, Luke 2 is the first story I ever read to my kids. They were born, the day they were born, all four of them, they got to hear about Jesus, day one. It was somewhat symbolic, right? I know they couldn't understand it. It didn't really matter to me whether they could understand it, but I wanted them to know there was never a day of their life where they didn't know about Jesus. This morning, I'm glad that they don't have to depend upon my word, but can depend upon his. If you're a visitor this morning, we're certainly thankful that you're here. My last plea to you would be, if you don't know the Lord, know that's why Jesus came. It's so that you can come to know him. There's a song that we sing occasionally called, Don't Put Off Salvation Too Long.
with the uncertainty of this world and the finiteness of life, what a gamble to know of a Savior and choose not at the most in the present hour to run to Him. I pray that God would be with us all both today and moving forward.